This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Well, we've got a real talker coming up that you're going to love. I just know I'm going to love this. I know I'm going to love this. Uh, I knew of this guy 40 years ago. Never met him, but I knew of him because 40 years ago he was a legend uh, for what he got up to and how he did things. He lived life at 100 miles an hour. And he's done a lot of things, and he's got a lot of wisdom. And I'm talking about Donald McIntosh, who um, we refer fondly to as Mad Mac um, or Mac. But the Mad Mac sort of fits, doesn't it, Mac? It does indeed. And I, over the years, have become quite proud of it. Um, And these days... Just about everybody that knows me calls me that, and there's nothing nasty in it. Nothing um, nasty. People said it, Mad Mac, with a sense of reverence and admiration. And there's a a video of you made that I watched, and you lived the sort of life that I would want to live. I lived the boy's own adventure. And that's part of that that's an asset and it's a deficit. And my life has been an adventure. And I get to a stage where other people would say, Well, okay, I'm good at this. Uh, Roddy, I'll take an office job now and I'll be the head of the team. My attitude is, well, I've been there, I've done that, that's boring now. What's next? What's the next challenge that I could take on? <laughs> and it must have been awful for some of the people tagging along with me, um, specifically people that um, I had children with. Uh, I do feel for them to the degree that, that it would be a very difficult life uh, for most people to live because it was either feast or famine and you didn't know where you were going to be tomorrow. Well, that suited me. But it doesn't suit most people and it doesn't suit children who need to go to school and all that sort of thing. Well, so- it's this great man syndrome, isn't it, that um, there are great men uh, who achieve incredible things and you see their wives and their children crushed because uh, a man that's out there on a mission um isn't necessarily the loving, caring husband and father. I loved and cared, but as you saw from the video, if it was Christmas Day and it was right to go power fishing, I was off. Um, And it it was time and place. The time is right now. The place is out there. Uh, And that made it very difficult for people making arrangements um, because we might be there and we might not. Um, Let's get into that. Let's get into that, Mac, because you're a philosopher and let's delve into it. What year were you born, Mac? 1949. 1949. And where were you born? Palmerston. Palmerston North or Palmerston Palmerston South? in the South Island. The and I'm an Aquarius. <laughs> the real Palmerston. Yes. And you grew up in Palmerston? No. Um, uh, Mum... Uh, separated from my father very early on, um, and I wound up 
being fostered while mum went to work. So I spent my time in Lawrence um, at the home there. She wanted that home because there were less kids there. Uh, there was only 13 of us. Um, that was uh, as good as it could be time in my life. Um, other foster pl uh, places I stayed at in Dunedin. So most of my early time was Dunedin, and then at eight, this guy came along and uh, my grandma told me he was my new dad. <laughs> I thought to myself, no, he's not. I don't even know who this guy is. Uh, anyway, we then went and lived up in Christchurch. Uh, so he, and married, I he, he married your mum? Yes. Mm. And I went up to meet my sister, uh, who was about six months old. Uh, and that was quite good. Um, my father had been in the Second World War, and I think that wrecked him because he uh, – um, I don't want to disrespect him, but he was an alcoholic after that. Mm. And um, Ray was a presser and a dry cleaners. And <laughs> it wasn't exactly exactly the model I was looking for, if that makes sense. Yes. Uh, what's your dad do? Oh, he's a presser and a dry cleaners. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, I had the Look, he was, a, he was a good man. He was a good man. Yes, I had the best dad in the world because yeah. I grew up in Rangura and my father was a truck driver and he always had the best truck with the biggest trailer on board and I just love trucks and trailers and when my dad would drive down the main street, all the little kids would stop to look at this magnificent machine going down the street and I would beam with pride. That was my dad driving that beast. Isn't it funny when you're kids? Um, yes. And I felt sorry for the kids whose dads were lawyers and accountants. <laughs> yes, and that's kind of how I felt. I wanted a, a, a an heroic father. Yes. Um, and uh, sadly, pressing, he, he, he was heroic in that. He looked after me and my mum until I left home. So... Mm. Uh, and my sister, so you know, hats off to him. He, he was, and a in good a man. funny way, as you get older and look back, they are the real heroes. Yes, they are. They're the solid people that stay there. I say this to my son all the time. I love Mark Twain's quote: "At fourteen, I couldn't believe how stupid my father was. At twenty-one, I couldn't believe how much he'd learned in seven years." <laughs> yes, and. <laughs> Axel can almost throw the, the quotes back at me these days because I've said them that many times, the poor wee bugger. So you left school and did what? I uh, joined the military. Um, wasn't a good idea, but I'd always wanted to be a uh, saturation diver. Um, oh, really? Uh, you wanted to be a saturation diver when you are at school? Oh, yes. One of my school teachers was a diver, Mr Phillips. And uh, that was at Phillipstown School in Christchurch. And um, I, I never lost the passion for wanting to be a diver. And Jack Cousteau and people like that were Oh, Jack Cousteau, when I was a kid on the TV, I loved that show in Calypso. Me too. And, and, of course, he he was one of the two men that, in, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that invented the Aqualung. Yes, he was. And... and uh, Great stuff has come from what he's done. Yes. Uh, and and what's, I, a what's a saturation diver compared to a diver? Saturation diver means you uh, work with mixed gases and that. You know, if you go over 196 feet, you're 
too deep to breathe the air that we breathe uh, at the surface level. Under compression, you will get all sorts of problems. Uh, um, the oxygen at the at the content it is then will can kill you. Um, you get nitrogen narcosis, which can make you uh, see things that aren't there. Um, wow. I can remember on a, a dive uh, as a navy, it was in the navy. It was near Wakatani, and I was probably only down two hundred feet. And I can remember saying to them, "Oh, I can see the most beautiful iridescent blue manta rays." Well, they hooked me up to the surface as quickly as they could get me <laughs> up there. The reality was I wasn't hallucinating at all. There was a manta ray, and at that depth, he was moving through the water, and all the um, little uh, creatures that he was disturbing were glowing. So oh, I was wow. giving a very accurate description of what I saw at that But they time. thought you were hallucinating. Yeah. <laughs> so you went into the Navy. Had you already been diving by then? Yes, yes. I'd done all the courses I could do at the uh, um, at the civilian uh, ones, and I did want to go to the US um, and go to diving school over there, but my parents couldn't afford it, um, and the next, the only other way I could get there was the military. Now, look, man, the military was really bad idea. If but you were, um, you were... You were very ambitious. Like, there you were at Phillipstown School, Christchurch, in the, yes. what would it be, early 1960s, I'm guessing. Yes. And you are wanting to be this diver. Yes. And not just puddle around Kaikoura. No. actually get serious. Yes, very definitely. You were ambitious. You had it in you. I don't know if it was ambitious. I, uh, yes, I suppose it was. It was just um, looking back on it, and I've never done this before, um, I suppose I wanted to be able to make a difference. Um, I had already uh, formulated views about uh, how we were treating this planet, um, even at... at uh, early school days and I was bothered by that and I was bothered by a lot of the things I saw going on around me not to the degree that I am these days but conscious of we shouldn't be doing that mm. uh, we should be doing something a wee bit different what I th meant by that I, I've no idea it wasn't until I got to high school that I started to formulate um, uh the areas that I wanted to go, um, and I was always top of my class. So I had the background to be able to make more choices than a lot of people could in my day. Okay. However, I was stupid enough not to go to university. Um, uh, I think what I might have been good at was being a scientist, but yes. I didn't do, go that route. I should say for people listening that we're going to get onto this, but uh, Mad Mac, amongst other things, um, drove and pioneered the power business, which in the early days, the divers were diving for a pittance. And Mad Mac with, got around him a crew, organized the divers, and this is why you'll keep listening, made them all millionaires probably, um, and turned 
a little business into a industry. It's, and in- it's, it's an astonishing story, and we're going to lead up into that. And I'm sorry for not taking you to one of the uh, exciting points because we're wanting to do the lead up and understand how you came to do that because you did change New Zealand in that regard, and I'm going to get there. How old were you when you joined the Navy, Matt? Um, I think I was just, I, I was too old to be a seaman boy, uh, so it was either 16 or 17. How did you find it? Oh, I hated it. Um, I loved, the only time I was at peace and in my element was when I was at the diving school, and they kept telling me I was too young um, to go to the diving school, so I went for a wee ticky tour for six weeks, went down to Taupo, absent without leave, um, uh, stacking wood and that sort of thing. And when I went back, um, uh, I got, um, oh, I can't remember whether it was 14 or 28 days number nines. And as soon as I was finished that, I went to the diving school. Nice. What's number nines? Ah, it's punishment. Uh, You do your eight hours work and then you do two hours more in the morning and two hours more at night, and then after supper, you do another two hours. So, and that might be scrubbing floors, uh, cleaning out toilets, stuff like that. Mm. And where were you based uh, in the Navy at that time? That was Fillmore at the time in Auckland. Okay. And what was diving school? Diving school was different. Um, uh, there was none of the square bashing nonsense or any of that sort of thing. Everybody knew your life depended on the guy next to you. So it was quite different. And when they started to realise that not only could I do it, but I wanted to do it and I relished it, um, those were my happiest times. My unhappy times were when I was put on, uh, I was on the Kayama for a while, um, which was a wee minesweeper and the Blackpool for a while, which was a, a frigate. Um, none of those times were satisfactory to me. Uh, the only times that were satisfactory were at the diving school. And um, eventually, uh, Rodney, I got um, uh, services no longer required. Um, and you were a square peg in a round hole sort of I thing. was. I was. I was and, in and- absolutely the wrong place. It's like that, the, the, the Captain Marriott's, Mr. Midshipman Easy. I questioned everything. <laughs> you don't do that in the military. No. You know, wash the upper deck with Fresh's map. Well, I've done that. Well, use your initiative. Do something else. Then the next minute you're told you're not paid to think. So I, I couldn't meld these two things together. Yeah. I'll use your initiative. You're not paid to think. And I had real difficulty with that. And I queried things that I would have these days been better off doing what I tell my son. Look, tick the boxes, mate, and be quiet. And diving school taught you to dive better. What what did you – you could already dive, so what extra was diving school in the Navy? Uh, the the mixed gases and that sort of thing became better. I never really um, did that well. Uh, even in that aspect of it, until um, I got out into the civilian world again. Okay. Um, so how long and, did you last in the Navy? Uh, I think about four and a half years. 
Hmm. So you came out of the Navy and you could dive extremely well. I was adequate. And there are not a lot of divers, I guess, in those days. No. So then what? Uh, Eventually I wound up, I I did a bit of saturation diving around the world and then I wound up, a friend of mine was working at Stewart Island and I went over there, he asked me uh, to go over and weld craypops and I went over and did that, but I would keep taking off uh, to do other things Um, and eventually he decided that he really couldn't employ me. So um, I got a 14-foot X-Class racing yacht that was for sale cheap, and I went power diving in it. And um, until I got shipwrecked, uh, I got quite a few power in that, but the locals were all really annoyed with me. And, you know, you need a motor. They were almost going to band together and buy me a motor. But I was coming back from... uh, the neck, which everybody that knows Stewart Island knows where that is. It's to the south of Half Moon Bay. And I'd been over there and I'd slept the night because there was a howling southwesterly, probably 40, 50 knots of wind coming through. But I had a ton of power uh, in the boat and I thought, I've got to take this home um, or I'm going to lose it. And I've got a bit of weight, so I should actually be able to do this. Well, it sailed like a dream. By the way, Rodney, I have n- had no idea how to sail. It can't be that hard. <laughs> <laughs> this is um, why you're a mad neck, right? Yeah, and so it took off, and uh, I never hit a reef, but just before I got to, to the open sea and around towards Ringeringa, and then I would have been uh, home and hose and safe, um, I hit some kelp on the surface. That tore the skeg out of the boat. The boat got ripped in half. I was shipwrecked. Um, I stayed on the beach for, uh, I'd say, about a week. I, I kept thinking, I saw fishing boats going past, so I kept thinking, surely they're looking for me. They'll find me eventually. Uh, but they didn't. Um, and I'd eaten a raw seagull, and, oh, my goodness, so fishy, it's unbelievable, and I thought, I'm getting sick of this. So I had a uh, a packet of um, carrots and peas, dried carrots and peas, and uh, a big um, tin of honey, and I thought, I've got to swim back. Um, I am not going to survive uh, out here if, if I don't do something for myself. The tr- I could walk all the way around, that would take weeks, or I could swim back. So it was easy for a start, Rodney, eating this uh, dried peas mixed with honey, but by the time I got to the bottom of that tin, I never wanted to see honey again in my life, but I knew I needed some energy to get back to the island. Anyway, long story short, I swam back to the island, which was probably a couple of miles, and... Um, and Michael Gooms did the tourist tours there, and he saw me collapsed on the beach at Ringeringa. Uh, and he drove his minivan down and said, what's going on? Are you shipwrecked? And I said, yes. And he said, well, get up and we'll, we'll take you in uh, to the pub. And I said, if I could get up, Michael, 
I wouldn't be lying down. <laughs> I'm exhausted, man. Anyway, we went into the pub. These were the days when I was still drinking, which was a really bad thing. I had a quadraphonic rum and about two pies, and I can't remember anything after that. Uh, and that was the end of it. Um, but that you lost lost your boat. Oh yes, lost my boat. Lost all the powers. Lost everything. And when you say that uh, Kelp pulled the skeg out, what's the skeg? Oh, the big rudder that sticks down underneath the boat. Oh, that the probably keel. sticks what? four feet into the water. Okay. Okay. So you, once you've lost that, you're straight over. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I was going that fast with that much weight in it that it was easy. And that's really an indicator of my life and why I enjoyed it so much, Rodney, because, okay, there were feasts and famines and there were tragedies and all that sort of thing. But, man, it was exciting. Oh, yeah. And you stayed power fishing? Yes, I stayed power fishing for a while. Um, All around the place, I also took up rig fishing and I did a wee bit of cray fishing. I worked on other people's boats. Then I managed to get my own boat. I worked at Stewart Island. I worked at Riverton. Um, And it was about this time, I would say I was in my mid-20s, that I started to realise that we were really getting screwed. I think uh, when I started, I know that when I first went with Mr Phillips up to Kaikoura, we were getting sixpence. Um, a pound for scrubbed power, so all the black stuff was scrubbed off it. By this time down there, we were getting about 50 cents a kilo, and I went up and saw Sea Lords um, and Nelson and said, look, we can't live on this. This is hopeless. We're actually real fishermen, but you're paying us rubbish money. Anyway... um, that went on for uh, quite a while, and I managed to. Can I just interrupt, Mac? I'm sorry. Um, you're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Really Check Radio. I just want to clarify the industry a bit because um, at that time, you were diving for power with a snorkel, right? No tanks. Yes, yes. So you're air diving and you're going down, and do you have a season by which you? Can catch them or can you catch them here? Take no, them flat away? days. If, if it's calm, that's the day you go, especially down here in the south. Um, Stewart Island, uh, everybody would wait for an easterly and then the few power divers that they were, they'd go round to Hellfire and that on the other side of the island. Okay. Um, Riverton, okay. you don't get that many days. Down on the Catlins Coast here, um, you don't get that many days either. I've dived all around New Zealand, um, and what I've noticed in the North Island is most of your powers are smaller up there, but there are areas where you get bigger ones. And part of the reason for doing that, Rodney, was I wanted to understand the species. When I went shark fishing, I didn't just go shark fishing. These are rigged there, about four feet long. Uh, they were used in fish and chips. They are very nice-tasting flesh. What do they eat? They eat paddle crabs. Okay, where are the paddle crabs? So I'd set a pop to find out where the paddle crabs were. When I, once I found that out, I would set a net across that. And then um, white pointers came along and 
hit them all off behind the net. So the next thing I wanted to do was know why the white pointers were there. And in those days, white pointers weren't protected and I didn't understand them uh, specifically well at that time. So for a year or two, I went harpooning um, white pointers because it was so much better than going out and catching a ton of blue cod. You've got two and a half ton of um, good meat right here with one animal. But even though they've given me quite a bit of fright in the water, um, white pointers, if they'd wanted to eat me, they would have done it well by now. I can remember. When you say you were hunting white pointers, you're in the water. No, no. uh, I I was, (laughs) no, I wasn't quite that That bad. Yeah. um, So how would you catch uh, a white pointer? I had a harpoon gun and. uh, I would harpoon them with three or four floats on. I only got three, four like that. And uh, as I said, I, I was swimming over this rock near Christmas Village on Stewart Island. And there must have been a, a white pointer on the other side. We met at the apex of the rock. Um, all I saw was teeth. And it must have regurgitated the contents of its stomach because it got a fright when it saw me, and I sure as hell got a fright because it, it whacked my shoulder. I think that must have been it turning around. I don't know. Um, I was still swimming 100 yards after I'd hit the beach, uh, Rodney. <laughs> believe you me. I, I was a long way up in the bush before I stopped panicking. Um, but I actually started to think about how magnificent these animals were. Um, and I didn't want to, to kill them anymore. So um, that was the end of that. And they were uh, two and a half ton. So, yes. Wow. There's now, a jaw of mine in Te Papa. Wow. So going back to the power, you would dive down with a snorkel. Yep. Some considerable depth. Uh, most I could go to, people will think this is fairy stories, I don't really care, 100 feet, but most powers are less than 60 feet in New Zealand, around Stewart Island and up the west coast, uh, around Pusica and that sort of area, especially out in the headlands, you, you'll get really good, massive amounts of power in 60 feet of water. Um, down here in the Cheslands at Perikanui Bay, there's an area underneath the cliffs that is easy, it looks like a gravel bottom. It's not a gravel bottom, and it's not until you get down there that you realise this is all power. Um, and or so you was at that time. You'd go down, you'd have what was it, a knife to scrape them off? I used a thing that was like a plasterer's trowel that I cut down that just had a thing about as long as my finger. I'm showing you an area about four inches long, and it was about as wide as my finger. You would slip it under the power and flip them into your hand net. And you have a hand net. And yeah. how long would you stay down for on the breath? At the time, I was uh, capable of holding my breath for four and a half minutes. Um, you kind of felt like Superman uh, if you did a lot of power diving because you were. We were. I used to complain bitterly to the authorities that we were the only people in New Zealand that went blue in the face holding our breath while we made our money. <laughs> 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 I've always advocated that we should be using underwater breathing apparatus in New Zealand. It should be illegal to take a power off the rocks um, 
if you haven't measured it first. And my reason for that is they have no blood clotting mechanism. So if you put a little cut in them, it do, they might look all right. They're stuck back to the rock. But two weeks later, they're dead. Yes. So you're so doing you're, it. you're because you're on holding your breath. Yes, you're moving fast. Whereas yes. if you were on a, a tank, you'd take your time and you'd make sure you're only getting the ones that have correct size. Yes, and it seems to be. Uh, it's a bit like the hemp. There's an anti feeling against that in New Zealand, and I don't quite know why. They're allowed to use compressed air. Um, at the Chatham Islands, and they're like the Australians. They don't use tanks, Rodney. They use a compressor on the surface. Okay. A hose comes down. They've got a band mask. Um, and the reason for the the uh, them being allowed it in the Chathams is a few of them have been taken by white pointers. Um, so the government sensibly allowed them to do that. On the mainland, I'm not sure what it is specifically now that you've got... Um, a limited number of people, and they're not allowed to go. I was allowed to go under my licence anywhere in New Zealand. Mm. These days, you're either Stewart Island, Catlins, Pusica, whatever. You can't and you're on a quota. Of it. And yes, you're on a quota. and you've got a quota. Now, tell me, you'd go down, you'd gather up with this net, and I've seen video of you catching uh, or taking power. Man. You could take a lot of power in a short time. Yes, I used to say to my dinghy boys, dinghy boys are the people that would be in your little rubber inflatable and they would be following you around. Don't wash your hands when I come to the surface. I'm drowning. (laughs) Take the net off me. (laughs) And they'd lift the net up. How long would you spend at the top before going down again? Uh, it depended. Um, look, I used to have this saying, you've got to make hay while the sun shines. So I would put in incredibly long days. Um, and uh, like, for instance, I went out to the Solander Islands. You can be, you know, you'd be lucky if you get uh, three days a year when you can dive out there. When you can, it's magnificent. And the powers are like dinner plates. So it doesn't take you very long to get a ton of power out there, and you'd be lucky if you could see where you've been. But I think this is what upsets people. They see the powers coming in by the ton. They don't know how much work you've done to get them. All Mm. they think is, my favourite patch has been cleaned out. Mm. Um, And in some cases, they would be right. Not all divers in my time were... Uh, conscious, there used to be people that would say things like, well, if I don't take them, the next guy would. Well, Mm. that's a self-fulfilling philosophy. Mm. No, let's not take them at all. Let's not wipe them out. And we had a guy called Dr. Jeremy Prince. uh, I first met him in Tasmania. He would come over here and preach to us, for goodness sake, guys, don't wipe them out. Once they're gone, they really struggle to re-establish themselves. Mm. You've got to leave a resident population there. Now, um, back in the day you were doing it, yes, they had developed the technique for utilising power, which they'd go off to a factory and they'd bleach the things white. Yes. And they'd bleach them white because Asians expected their abalone to be white and they wouldn't eat something that was black. 
and they'd bleach them white and stick them in a can and off they'd go to Asia, correct? Well, actually, they were bleached sort of an orangey colour and in my view, they tasted a bit like soap. Um, Clearly, I'm not a connoisseur of canned um, power, but the whole thing seemed wrong. And this was about the time that I started, the Labour government at the time was talking about uh, level playing fields for everybody in New Zealand. I think this would have been in the mid to late 80s. And um, I went to Colin Moyle, who was the Minister of Fisheries at the time, and said, well, we haven't got a level playing field. Um, and I, you, you, I had to sell, you had to sell to these factories. We were only allowed to sell to three people, Rodney. Uh, Watties, Sea Lords, and Salmon Smith by land. And you weren't allowed to sell to anybody else, including fish and chip shops. Unbelievable. It was unbelievable. Um, it was an absolute cartel. And it sort of is reminiscent of what's happening in the hemp industry today. And I'm not trying to digress into the no. hemp industry. I am noting the comparisons of the, uh, I mean, I said this the other day. Um, Einstein mightn't have been the first to say it, but he said that there's the two most abundant things in the universe are hydrogen and human stupidity. Yes. And we seem to have a disproportionate amount of human stupidity for a country that prides itself on this number eight wired approach to doing things and doing great and innovative things. And we seem to be crushing that um, these days. Anyway, Colin so, Moyle. So went to Colin Moyle. Yeah. Yes, went to Colin Moyle, and he agreed that we uh, could export two tonnes of power. Each applicant, you had to make an application, and... Uh, me and Dr. Jeremy Foley, we went out and got our two-ton. Well, Jeremy did most of it. Um, and we sent that to Mr. Ree, and we got paid 30 grand a ton for it. At the time, we were getting 80 cents a kilo. So that was a massive increase. And uh, we sold the two-ton uh, to Mr. Ree, which was the next nearest was Salmon Smith Biolab. They managed to get 15 grand a tonne for theirs. And we used that 60 grand to set up the Abalone Divers of New Zealand Co-op. And that changed a peasant uh, subsistence business to an economic industry, a powerhouse, in fact. It absolutely did. And you said before that uh, you made some of them millionaires, made all of them millionaires. Yes. And it was interesting. I was going to a funeral of a diver um, a couple of years ago, and a guy walked up to me, and I used to have this saying, um, and it was a cheeky saying of, but I made you a millionaire. Uh, um, and he walked up to me and he said, do you remember me? And I said, sorry, no, I don't. And he said, but I made you a millionaire. And I started to laugh. And I said, how old were you when I last saw you? And he said, oh, about 18. This is a 50-year-old man. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, of course I don't recognise you. I'm surprised you recognise me. Um, and it did. The, the downside of that was that none of us that were making that sort of money were used to that sort of money. Well, let's and go into that, let's go into that Matt, because – 
Um, and forgive me if I say the wrong thing in terms of my understanding is wrong. I know you'll never be offended, but I want to characterize and understand this because it's a great New Zealand history that hasn't been recorded. The sort of guys, and I think they were guys, who were power diving before it become rich, were sort of people like yourself that didn't fit into an office job. Yep. And we're sort of like drifting around New Zealand, your quintessential Barry Crump type guy. Absolutely. around New Zealand who, like being out in the bush, uh, knew how to kill a deer, um, skin a sheep, all those sorts of things, would think nothing of hopping on a boat and doing a week's work. And then, oh, I've got a few spare days. Oh, the weather's come. I'll go and grab some power. And living in many ways, an outdoor glorious life, but living on a subsistence pay, but answerable to no one. Absolutely correct. Cowboys. I used to complain uh, when the shell buyers came around, the fancy cars they were driving, the managers of Sea Lords, the fancy cars they were driving, and the wrecks we were getting around in those days. And I'm saying, there's something wrong with this picture. I can remember a guy who bought Powers and Nelson for Sea Lords, and he said the best way to keep a power driver working is when he comes up with his hand net, you hand him some money, and he'll go back down again. And they had this idea of how to get us to keep working for almost nothing. Now, I've always had the attitude um, uh, that the people that get their hands dirty should reap some of the reward significantly more than they most often do. So that was the motivating factor for me was, these are the guys that are doing the work. Why are you the only ones in fancy cars? These guys should have at least the ability to, to emulate you to some degree. Um, not that the, they perhaps want to. With the cooperative, yes, you were able to export directly, yes. not put them in a can. Were you getting them out fresh? Yes, that became the massive market going to Japan had never been a market. But the moment we started live export, Japan was their boots and all, despite the fact that they were black. They had no trouble with them being black at all as long as they were fresh. Mm. And so guys who had previously been earning, what, how much would you make pre this era for a day's diving? Enough to get enough fuel to, to go on the next trip and perhaps feed your family a wee bit. I used to say you never knew where your kids' next set of uh, shoes were coming from. Um, but let's let's put a number on it. You would not have earned 10 grand a year. Okay. Once this market developed in Japan, how much could you make in a day? My best day was probably close to $200,000. $200,000. Yep. Can you imagine that, listeners, that you have these cowboys? This is a glorious, this is a gold rush, right? Yep. They went from being peasants. They weren't even respected by the fishermen because they weren't real fishermen, because they just went out in their dinghies and swam in the water, not on top of it, and didn't bring in their big nets. The people that they were selling to regarded them as, well, a pair of hands. And, slaves. Yeah, slaves who were silly enough to go diving and risk their lives in the water with sharks. 
and um, under some horrific conditions. And literally, to an outsider overnight, they went from having not knowing where their next meal was coming from or a pair of shoes for their kids to getting 40, 50, 100, and on one famous day, $200,000 a day in the 80s. Yes. And, and in the 1980s, $200,000 would buy you two houses. Oh, no. If only I'd, if only I'd bought two houses. <laughs> so this was, this must have been an extraordinary feeling, Mac. It was. Unfortunately, as I said in the video, I became very spoilt. I didn't think I was, but um, it's easy. And, oh, let's go fishing today, Mac. Uh, no, nah, I think we'll only make 30 grand. I think we'll stay at home. And if I didn't think we could make 80 grand in a day, I wouldn't go. Um, Bear in and- mind, this is this is... This is the early 1980s or mid-80s, I guess. Like, yeah. I bought a house in Christchurch, a beautiful house, for $100,000. You know, I think I, I was a junior- farm. Sorry? I did buy a farm. <laughs> Good idea. I had an airplane. Um, I, I, I uh, went in the West Coast. When we started getting the decent money and that sort of thing, I started agitating for this in the West Coast. Um, and I was flying them out um, at 80 cents a kilo. I was really wrapped when that turned into 50 bucks a kilo, uh, which happened in the first two years. Uh, we were able to increase our, our turnover by 100% a year for the first five years, Rodney, because there was increasing demand and diminishing supply. So it was in that context that was quite different from the hemp because uh, it was it was in some ways quite easy. The downside of that was that uh, we were easy marks. Look, seriously, we were easy marks. Everybody um, continued to treat us with disrespect. Um, I think one of my infamous uh, things I remember is getting invited to Westpac after hours, pink gin sessions. Um, and thinking this was just normal, uh, not realising we're putting $400 million through their bank. Of course they're going to to invite you along, Mac. I just didn't understand any of those dynamics, and I didn't understand uh, at the time. I was chair of the co-op for six and a half years, Um it actually self-destructed like most co-ops do from the inside. Um, and a lot of people will tell you that it needed to, and it probably did. And a lot of people would tell you that I had stayed on too long and I would be one of them. Uh, people that do things like I do, they're good for the scrap, if I can. Scrap's probably the wrong, but they're, they're good when it's, when you have to fight hard to mm. earn your place, but they're no good in the mundane day-to-day way of doing things. Um, I read I read a great biography of the great General Georgie S. Patton, yep. who was a military genius and prepared his whole life 
literally for a situation like World War II, where he was magnificent and was always in trouble uh, with the higher-ups and wasn't given his head or petrol for his tanks oftentimes or fuel for his tanks. And he died at the end of the war in a car crash. And his biographer said it may be for his legend just as well because he was a man for the fight. Yeah. And he wasn't a man for the peace. <laughs> I I agree with that. Not that I'm um, uh, advocating violence. I'm no, more but when there's a need the for a push. Yeah, yes. when there's a need for the push. And when there's and then the thing is you have the push, and it's like you pushed the power industry into making it an industry, and then it needs management. Yes. And, and I you. wasn't the guy. Uh, and we actually had a meeting in Invercargill uh, where they were disbanding the co-op, and, and uh, this was part of the internal destruction. And, and it's not my intent here to to make bad of anyone. Things change, mm. and I should have got out um, probably eighteen months before I did. Uh, and I said to them, oh, "Don't do this, guys. What else have I got?" Uh, but the truth of the matter was that I would have been better to say, look, whatever you do, don't forget our founding principles, conserve the resources, and share it as much as you can equally amongst your fellows. Um, those were the philosophies that I set it up for. So I'd like to think they're still there. Um, I have met a few divers uh, but not many these days. And I have seen that some areas, uh, like this Catlin's Coast, the powers are recovering really slowly, but they are. So mm. that's a good thing. The, now you were living with your wife and children. Yes. On the beach. Yes. How long did you live like that? Uh, we lived for well over a year like that. Um, uh, Alma had been uh, and had a mastectomy. She had breast cancer, and the doctors were horrified that I was taking her to live on the beach. But she wanted to, and the price was still lousy at that stage. But we had never had so much money in our life, uh, Rodney. I think we had three or four thousand dollars in the bank. We'd never had that. Um, and every time we went to town with a load of power, we all went. I had a J1 Bedford, and we'd all go to town. And on those days, sea lords used to pay you straight away. As soon as you got, got your catch landed, they would write you out a cheque. You could take it to the bank, turn it into money. First thing we would go is to have a spa um, and a big nosh up, and then get a load of groceries and go back to the beach for another crack at it. It was wonderful. And your kids grew up. Wild and free. Oh, yes. What happened was the education department came uh, down to visit us because they didn't like what we were doing with the kids. The kids were um, four and five uh, and just on the verge of, well, not quite five. One must have been three and the other four. Anyway, by the time they got to the end of this windy dirt track to Pirakanui Bay, they were fairly subdued. 
but they still came on pretty strong about, uh, well, your kids aren't getting an education and blah, 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 blah. So they knew the times tables up to the 12 times. Uh, so <laughs> they sat there and recited that for them. And then we had a blackboard in the tent and they wrote uh, short sentences and that on them, little stories of we saw a hedgehog with babies last night, stuff like that. Um, and the people from the education department, and there might have been something like SIFs, I don't know, at the time. They were pretty impressed, and they went away, and they never bothered us again. And then the money rolled in. And then we actually started to get the money rolling in, and that's when I bought a farm at Akatoa. Um, and uh, uh, I was hardly ever home because I was up the West Coast fishing. Um, and that's also when our uh, marriage fell apart. Um, and that was all my fault. Um, none of it was Elma's. She was just a good um, good Kiwi lady. Uh, anyway, uh, yes, the money started to come in and uh, there's a downside with the money too because that's when I started going, looking around for company mm. um, because I could afford it. And uh, I managed to convince myself that I wasn't being unfaithful because I was paying for it. I'm I, laughing. I'm not laughing because I want other people to emulate that. I'm laughing because of how I fooled myself into thinking I was still a good guy. We men have an amazing ability to convince ourselves that behaviour that we'd abhor in someone else is fine with us because we're slightly different. Yes, I'd agree and we with can that. Justify, we can justify working around the clock and being away from home. I know I've done this on the basis that you're providing for your family, even though yes. you're never there. And I think I was as good as that, if not better than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And it would be one of, most of the times I say I wouldn't change anything. I would change that aspect because mm -hmm. um, I don't think the people in my life deserve that. No. Um, and as we get older, our youthful exuberance and, and testosterone-fueled ambitions and drives, um, you can see through them, right? Yes, you can. I often get embarrassed by myself. I can remember in the in the co-op, uh, a guy called John Hanning, he was one on our board of directors, and he used to make comments like, oh, that must have been written by Mac because it would say something good about me. Uh, and <laughs> it, it hadn't been written by me. Although some of them were, and sometimes you look back at things and you think, well, that would have been good if someone else had written it. The fact that mm. I wrote it isn't that good. Mm. And I think some, I'd like to think that some form of humility comes in there. You know that you only did this because of the people that acted as your wingmen. There's mm. been a lot of people over the years, uh, some that, that, uh, we've wound up being uh, quite disagreeing with each other. Yet without them, I couldn't have um, achieved any of those things. People sweeping up and people doing things that are more mundane to yep. 
uh, and making things happen that you've sort of pointed the ship towards. I get that feeling about you, Mac. I recall a funny story about why they, many reasons they call you Mad Mac, and no doubt you'll have some others that you can share, but I recall that you would take off in your aeroplane a little bit overloaded with power. A little bit. <laughs> and you'd be throwing, the people would be throwing power out the window to keep the plane afloat. Yes, that's a falsehood. Um, in a Piper supercar, there's no room for anyone to be in there throwing powers out, including me. It flew like a brick. It had a, a, a payload of 180 kilos. I would easily put 750 kilos in it. And I was another lucky. half ton. Yeah. Yes. And, um, uh, the beach at Pusica, which is where we camped, um, it was 1,100 metres long. So a Piper Super Cub will fly at 28 miles an hour. So you had a lot of beach, and I had an overpowered motor in it and a, a prop that was for pulling, so it wouldn't fly over 90 miles an hour, uh, but it had a lot of tow. And it would get up and here, Rodney, and I would have three miles going across the sound to get to a thousand feet to get over no. the hill. <laughs> and I'm telling you, every time I did it, I'm thinking, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Um, it always got there, but eventually I stopped flying because I realized I heard through the grapevine that all my friends down below and the fishing boats had a pool on which trip I wouldn't make it because it was that grossly overloaded. I couldn't land it at the airport. I had to land it at my brother-in-law's farm. Um, so some of these stories, uh, I think I said to you right at the beginning, some of them might even be true. And I've heard stories about me. Uh, there was one I was in the Hawea pub and this guy was telling this story, and I heard the name Mad Mac. And I went over to him and I said, hell, that's a really cool story. Um, he sounds like Jack the Giant Killer. And he said, yes, yes, he is. And I said, do you know him? And he said, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and I said, do you know me? And he said, no, who are you? And I said, I'm Mad Mac. How do you do? <laughs> well, you were the cowboy of cowboys, Mac. Uh, it, 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 it was good, like it was a friendly conversation in that. Um, but I've heard stories that are, with my name in them, if it, the name hadn't been there, I would say, who is this guy? Um, does he leap tall buildings and all that sort of thing? And, of course, I don't. But you do do things, and I think Kiwis are, are really good at building on the image, if it doesn't sound quite spectacular enough, we'll throw another yeah, thing we'll, in there. We'll, we'll, we'll bury Crumpet and make it a good story. <laughs> and um, I don't mind that. I mean, it, uh, for, for your ego, it's <laughs> kind, It's you know, just, can you live up to the story? You would have had millions of dollars pass through your hands. Yes, I was a millionaire three times. Me and money have a very brief association. It's a shame that I have this attitude that it's only paper with ink on it because um, it's been feast or famine my whole life and it would have been more comfortable for me and those around me had I been a wee bit 
better at managing money. I, I think my attitude that it's just paper with ink on it doesn't help because um, I, I've got this awful attitude of, well, it wasn't that hard to make it. Mm. Surely we'll just make it again when it was hard to make it. You forget about all the agony you went through to get there. There's been more uh, lend times in my life than there have been times of plenty. So, And, and uh, you must look at it and think, I dropped tens of thousands of dollars on that trip to Las Vegas, say, yes. and now what I'd give to have 100 for dinner. Yes, yes, there's no question. Although, Rodney, it's fair to say that I've got no regrets. You can't change anything in the past, or I can't anyway. Um, all I can do is try and be a better person today and learn from my lessons. Mm. Uh, one of the farmers down the road said to me uh, a few months back, well, if you make it again, Mac, and it's looking like you might, what will you do with the money? And I straight up, I said, oh, I'm going to spend it. And he said, what, won't you put any away? And I said, man, I'm 74. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> the great Georgie Best, the footballer who was like the fifth beater, he was so famous. I love the quote of his because he is a terrific alcoholic and could still go out the next day and play soccer like no one had ever seen. And they said to him, because he ended up down his luck, Georgie, what happened to all your money? He said, um, I spent it on, was it wild woman, fast cars and something else? Wild woman, fast cars and horses, I think. And he said, and the rest I wasted. Yes. <laughs> and I think that, that's a really good analogy of, of how people um, live their lives. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed mine. Um, I had a couple of TIAs um, a few years ago, and um, uh, I was surprised at how unscared I was. Uh, TIAs are attempting to have a stroke but not making the grade. Yeah. So, uh, and that was uh, partly to do with my age, partly to do with the fact that I was still running as if I was 19 um, and that sort of thing, and I've got to stop doing that. Mm. And uh, that gave me a, a real-life lesson of it's time to slow down, it's time to appreciate what you've got and have a look at, what can you leave as a legacy? And that's going to there's get this the that's happening now. Yeah, well, but let's get all... to that, but let's just close off the air baloney because yep. they bought the quota system in Yes, based on your catch history for the last two or three years. I can't recall which. So if you've been catching 10 tonnes a year, you'd get 10 tonne of quota. And that meant that from then on, you could catch 10 tonne of quota and that quota was tradable. And so uh, men that had been making good money as income then had that income capitalised into a quota right. Correct? Yes. And that made millionaires over and over. Absolutely. Uh, we couldn't believe <coughs> that the piece of paper was worth so much, and I think Initially, it was something like uh, $40,000 a tonne, and I can't quite remember what my quota was. I think it was something like 44 tonne, and there was another 11 tonne um, that they owed me but wouldn't give me. Uh, and today, it's half a million bucks a tonne, just yeah. for the right to catch it. 
Yes. So that 44 tonne would uh, have me really smiling today, Rodney. Well, that would be 22 million. <laughs> <laughs> and I know, hard, I know. To, hard to think of when you've been diving for a few cents for, for power and being treated like rubbish on the wharf and around the pub and by the people that you're selling to, and then you start earning, well, I'm not going out until it's $40,000 a day, yeah. and then you get a piece of paper entitling you to catch fish. And by the way, the quota system was fantastic because it put a cap. It put a cap on the catch. Um, and then fast forward, 20 million bucks, that bit of paper. Yes, uh, and that it, it is a regret of mine. I, what happened, Rodney, was this. We made a deal. I went to Wellington to speak to the United Maori Council because um, they actually took out an injunction so that our quotas couldn't be um, allocated. And I spent all day there. Matt Rata went to sleep. I thought he didn't hear anything, uh, but he woke up and talked, and he'd heard everything I'd said. Um, I met a lawyer lady there, and she said, we've been waiting 150 years for justice, and I put my hand on her shoulder, and I said, well, you look really good for your age. And <laughs> I could tell she was undecided whether to haul off and smack me one or laugh. In the end, she gave in and laughed. And eventually, after a whole day, Sir Tippany O'Regan said, we're going to give you what you want, Mac. Because my argument was, We'd done exactly what the government required. Half of our members are Maori. Two wrongs don't make a right. So him and I went down to Justice Craig, Craig uh, at the court, and um, he said we want to lift the injunction and allow these guys to be issued their quotas. However, when the government finds in our favour, the industry has to provide that quota at cost to us. And all of our guys were really delighted when I got back. Uh, it was amazing. Before I got back to Dunedin, um, other people were claiming that they'd done it. They hadn't. I'd done it because I wasn't a suit. I was just an ordinary bloke up there saying, give us a fair deal. Uh, anyway, um, when it came time to pay up, when the government found that 18% uh, was owed to Naitahu, our guys wouldn't come up with the quota. Fortunately, I had enough quota to cover the lot. So I gave Naitahu, or sold Naitahu, the lot. With retrospect, I would have kept at least 10% of that had I been putting it on an ordinary market. But I felt on a bound. I made that deal, and our guys didn't care. They just decided, and I don't think it was because they're nasty. It was just they just didn't want to comply with it. We didn't make the deal. You did. You find the quota, which I had enough to find. So that um, in today's dollars, you gave Donata who millions? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think they paid me uh, around about 500000 for that and my fishing boat, which was a 40-foot. Um, speedboat. And, and, and how many tonne of quota did they get off you? 44 tonne. You sold the lot? Yeah, that's what they were owed. Oh my God. 
Yeah. Not because I'm a good guy, because I was honour bound to that. Well, I might be a good guy, but it was more about honour bound. We're talking to Donald McIntosh, uh, Mad Mac, and you're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking power, life, adventure, ups and downs, and hemp. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned. We've got more coming. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Uh, Mad Mac, um, Donald McIntosh, power fisherman, set up, the quota system was being set up, dispute with Maori who had an injunction on for their claim. Mad Mac did a deal and needed to give across the quota. Now, my memory of it is quota at that time, before the scheme even came into place, was selling for something like $14,000 a ton. Uh, It's now selling at half a million dollars a ton. The industry wouldn't surrender their 18%, I think you said the figure was, Mac, to Natahu for their share because they couldn't expand the cap. It was to come out of their share. So it was to be surrendered to Natahu at cost. And so Donald McIntosh, because of a handshake with Satipani O'Regan, sold 44 tonne of quota, which was his life's work. And he would be an extremely wealthy man, never need to work again because other people would fish his quota. He sold that to Natahu, plus a beautiful boat, 40-footer, for $500,000, which today is worth $22 million, just a quota. Oh, man, Mac. And you did that, you say, not because you're a good person, but you're a man of your word. Exactly. Um, uh, uh, I'm feeling a wee bit edgy about this because I don't want to big-time myself. Uh, No, we're not big-timing yourself. We're actually reminding ourselves, and it's important. We're not trying to up you, Mac. What we're reminding ourselves of what it is to have honour and integrity. That's all. And in that case, I support uh, what you're saying because I think that's something that's missing at the moment. It's something I miss dreadfully. Common sense. I I miss it dreadfully, the fact that you could say to someone and your bond was your word. Yeah. And it was a good time to be alive when that was the case because you had confidence. You did. And you knew you could move through the world with trust. Yes. i got a lot of stories like that. I'll share this one with you because you're making me think of these great men when I talk to you, Mac. And I mean that genuinely. I'm not saying you, I'm not upping you. I'm just saying men of integrity. The, the great Charlie Upham, VC and bar uh, in World War II, amazing, amazing uh, soldier. And he asked for leave when he was in Burnham, I guess, before heading overseas. And he never fitted in as a soldier um, for similar reasons, round hole and a square peg. And 
his commanding officer said, why are you, why are you going? Uh, what do you need leave for? Up him. And he said, oh, there's a fellow I need to beat up. <laughs> and, they, and the officer said, why do you need to beat him up? And he said, well, he bought my car off me and didn't pay the money. And I know which pub he, and the guy says, the, the officer said, you know where he is? And he says, yeah, yeah, I know which pub he drinks in. And he says, oh, he says, um, <laughs> I'll give you a lead for that. And Charlie Upham went off. And when he got back to base, the officer had him in and said, how'd you get on? Did you get the money? He says, no, but I beat him up. And that is a way that you and I understand, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And now you don't even like to trust someone when it's in writing. I'm specifically distrustful of uh, government departments. And, and we, should, we should have great faith in them. Um, the same as with doctors and people like that. I was having this discussion with uh, an acquaintance the other day of, you know, we, we trust doctors and that. Well, now we trust some doctors. Um, well, you, you, you and I, are we on the same page that that whole COVID thing was bullshit? Uh, pretty much. I've never trusted something government created. Never. Um, uh, and I've always been a conspiracy theorist. Me too. Um, I am now. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, however, um, I personally think that some people have gone a bit far with it. They're blaming everything on yes. it. And it's like for years that doctors used to blame um, cancer on smoking. Well, it may well have been a contributing factor, but I think mm. genetics and that probably play a bigger part in it. And that's because I've had, uh, not myself, but people around me um, who've been non-smokers and doctors seem to be lost when they can't blame smoking. Yes. Uh, but isn't, there, isn't that a thing, though, that through that COVID experience whatever your thought on it were was and this is what tipped me over you couldn't express it and have a debate and discussion about it you were smothered yes and that's when you smell a rat the bit that i disliked about it was it showed me how much freedom we haven't got yes because they were able to lock every one of us up who were the victims of no crime. Yep. We had committed no crime whatsoever, and for our own good, we were locked up. That freaked me out. Um, me out. Like, we live out in the middle of nowhere, Ronnie. Uh, beautiful scenery, all that sort of thing. So life really didn't change for us. It only changed when we went to do our annual, uh, our weekly uh, grocery shopping. The, and I've said all the way through, while I don't agree with a lot of the extremism, like I've got friends now that say things that I don't concur with, and it's along the lines of this. Oh, everybody that's going to be vaccinated, they're dropping dead all over the world, don't you know? So mm. what? You actually want me to drop dead to prove your theory about the government and the conspiracy is right. That in itself is bad. Yes. 
Um, I, I think you've still got to have compassion for people around you. What I am is I'm a pro-choice. You have the freedom to choose what you want that's to right. do. And that's um, why I will. I can never now support my party, the ACT Party, because I can't support anyone that voted to lock me up. Yeah. I mean, that's impossible to me. Um, and then when I query it, I just get yelled at. And I'm thinking, hang on. And then I went to Parliament and got even more abuse and no one would meet with me because I had concerns about people. And I have to say, Mac, I was... I didn't think, I looked at the vaccine, so-called, and I thought, I'm not taking that because there's no way they can know whether that's safe and effective. And I think it's my choice. And when they started to bully me, I, I got my back up. But I didn't think, I didn't think it would hurt people. I couldn't get that into my head. And when I started to hear that people were hurt from the vaccine, I didn't believe it. Because I thought, you know, people are getting sick all the time. Um, we always want to blame something. Moan, moan, moan. Whinge, whinge, whinge. Oh, my God, Matt. When I went to that protest, I met the vaccine injured and the people that had died, family, their families. And the proximal thing of literally getting the vax in a perfectly healthy person, becoming unable to move, terrifically sick, that's real. I don't know why. It's only hit some people. Maybe it was the batch. But when I met the people who were injured, Mac, they were workers like you and I. They weren't whingers. They were real people. They, 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 they were people who had worked every day of their life laid low. And then I realized there is something odd. I don't know the numbers. I don't know how bad. But certainly something's gone wrong. And um, if it was a conspiracy theory or something, if it was misinformation, what I just said, it would be easily answerable by the authorities. Um, and it's not. And um, something went wrong with that jab on people. And um, there are definitely people that are badly injured. And strangely, I had a lady visit us yesterday, doesn't know about me, didn't know about my radio show, didn't know what my views are. And she started to talk about how sick she's been. And I said, what do you think caused that? And she said, oh, it was the, the doctor said it was the vaccine. You know, and I said, did you report it? Oh, yes, yes, yes. It's all, the doctor put it all into the camp. She's a young mother, you know, who's terrifically sick. And they actually can't even figure out what's wrong with her. Yeah. She's got so many things. But I do know what you mean, because it's a bit like once you think that they can mislead you to that extent, you're in danger of believing anything. 
that's the real issue that I've got. I think what what has happened with this is that it's it's exposed a real anti-government feeling. Yes. Uh, and I'll explain it. Look, I often say to people, I vote for the people I hope will do me the least damage. Yes. What I would like to see as a legitimate vote, and we'll never get it, Rodney, I know that, is none of the above. Yeah. Because I don't trust any of you. No. Because you stop representing me the moment you start representing a party. And I thought MMP was going to get rid of that. But it isn't as actually made it worse. Yeah. So, look, I've got stories like that too. Uh, There's a guy down here. I was in at uh, Catlin's Country Store, um, and he had this most terrible skin condition. And I said, what's what's the problem with that? And he said, I've had two vaxxers. The third one did this to me. Um, Anyway, I was able to help him, and I can't really say why, because the Ministry of Health. Um, yes, you're not a doctor. I'm not a doctor. Uh, and <laughs> You're not a scientist. I, I have sat in front of them, though, Rodney, and said you're criminally negligent because you have denied people access to things like hemp tea. You're letting medical cannabis companies, uh, because they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars, and what was the first thing they came out with, Rodney? Hemp tea. What was the prescription? Boil some water, put it in a cup, put a teaspoon of um, a powdered hemp leaf in it. I knew that in 2001. I didn't need to spend $200 million or get a prescription to do it. Tell us about the hemp industry. How did you get involved in hemp? At the end of my fishing career, I was um, on the Federation of Commercial Fishermen's Council and all that sort of thing, and I um, wanted to move on. And I had um, there was a, a documentary put out by Barbara Chabocki uh, in the National History Film Unit in Australia called The Billion Dollar Crop, and I couldn't believe it. I actually had the money, so I went over and I visited her. And I also went to Tasmania and had a look at these people growing um, uh, growing the hemp. Now, look, I was a child of the 60s. Uh, um, I'd never been frightened of marijuana. Uh, I, I think I've explained to you that I'm a recovering alcoholic. I, I'm, I get high on life. I don't need anything Um uh, to get me high, just being alive and happy and having another day of sunshine or rain. I particularly like rainy days, which is kind of strange, but I think it lets you know you're alive when you're out there and it's freezing cold and you're getting wet and all that sort of stuff. So anyway, that the I was looking for something else to do. So I immediately uh, imported a um, uh, hundred of these Emperor Wears No Clothes of Jack Hera and uh, I started giving them to politicians and the police. And um, then me and 15 mates up the Awaka Valley, we set up the NZHIA. Uh, we never incorporated it at that time. So this is uh, the Industrial Hemp Association of New Zealand? Yeah. Yes. I was chair of that for 29 years. Um, I gave it up three years ago. Uh 
partially the same as the power because I thought it was time to move on. But I was also becoming very focused on the people in the South Island and particularly in the bottom half of the South Island. So we set up the New Zealand Hemp Collective. Um, I had my company, Hemp Seed Holdings Limited. Uh, so this is what drove me into it. And the more... I, the more I looked at it, the more I couldn't understand as an agricultural nation why we weren't utilising this plant with the multiplicity of end uses. It made no sense to me whatsoever, Rodney. So I spent the money that I still had some of at that stage and started to find out. And then I, in 1996, I decided to leave here, this house, and go and buy a house in Wellington we bought a house in Newlands. I wanted it to be relatively close to Parliament, and I thought it would take about 18 months to get the hemp legislation in place. Well, it didn't. It took a lot longer, and I had to, uh, me and my wife at the time, we helped fill a debunkle, um, collect signatures at a big music event in uh, Auckland around, well, it must have been well over 10 years ago maybe even 15 years ago. Uh, anyway, she said to me, if uh, I'm ever in a position to do you any good, I will. Six months later, she was Minister of Customs, and I got a phone call. And this was this was one of these lovely times of my life. I could actually ring a minister in wow. her office up and make an appointment. <laughs> anyway, um, she set up the interagency working group in the Ministry of Health because that was the only uh, place they could think of to put it at that time. Because remember, the only thing they knew about hemp at that stage was it was marijuana in their minds. Yes. So, well, that was uh, what I was until I heard Richard Barge and interviewed Richard Barge. To my mind, anyone wanting to grow hemp was just trying to surreptitiously grow marijuana. And I apologise, but that was my view. And that's understandable. We we had a lot of um, uh, information coming out that said you were right to think that. Um, and we like to think that that information is trustworthy and that we can rely on it. So anyway, um, uh, at that stage, I was the only one agitating, and I used to go and camp on uh, politicians' doorsteps and, what are you doing here? Well, I want an appointment with you, and you won't give me one. <laughs> Can we get security to remove him, or would it be easier to give him an appointment? Well, in the end, Jeanette Fitzsimons, Philida Bunkle, Rod Donald, um, and there were a few others. Uh, they gave us some time. I did uh, talk to Winnie the Poos. Um, he didn't seem to be here nor there. I still don't know where he's at. Um, but anyway. We thought we were making progress, and we were. Um, the thing I had to do was first prove to them that it wasn't a drug, and then we got administered as if it was a drug. The legislation is called the Misuse of Drugs Industrial Hemp 2006. <laughs> it implies that you're doing something wrong right yes. from the beginning, and I protested about that, but at least we were making steps forward. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, the manager of MedSafe at the time that ran the trials was Claire Vanderlem, and her partner 
Tony Vanderlim was um, a senior policy analyst for uh, MPI. Now, given that uh, the chair of the working group knew that MOH knew nothing about an agricultural crop and had been to university with Tony, he was called in to become uh, the knowledgeable input, and he was absolutely great. Now, the interesting thing is, fast forward 22 years, and Tony Vanderlem is the managing director of my company, Hempseed Holdings Limited, the only company in New Zealand that's created five generic New Zealand cultivars, and this was because I knew a guy called Professor John McPartland, and he wanted somebody to work with uh, the seed stock that he had, and nobody in the world that was a real scientist wanted to. So I took it on, and, uh, yeah, the first 15 years I didn't make much progress, Rodney, but over time I got to know what I was doing because it was another thing I took on that I didn't. A lot of people think, oh, yeah, you had a misspent uh, youth, you'll have grown heaps of dope and that. No, no. <laughs> I had no idea, no idea at all. All I had was a desire to, I because I imported the first lots of seed that came into New Zealand, the first lot from Hungary, which was Compulti and Unico B, and others from Canada. Uh, the Hungarian stuff turned out to be no good because they had no worries about its THC tent content and it came back at 5.2% so we had to abandon those as cultivars but uh, we were starting to move forward and the trials kept getting extended Philip de Bunkle of course got tossed out supposedly I think we're for shoplifting um, I personally believe it's because she had um, hemp curtains <laughs> in her government house, but I don't know why it was, which is a shame because uh, she really put herself on the line mm. and you and I might not be having this conversation if it hadn't been for her. Uh, and she seems to have been forgotten by the modern industry, such as it is. Anyway, um, uh Things were going great. It looked like we were really going to rock and roll. It was bad. The legislation was awful. Um, you had to uh, prove that you didn't have any drug convictions, have a police check. And Tony was the one that said, there won't be video cameras on tripods. There won't be guard towers. It's ridiculous. This is an agricultural crop. And over the first five years of us growing this, we will come to know that, and at that stage, the legislation will be revised and reviewed and moved to another um, area, such as standalone legislation not covered by the Misuse of Drugs Act because it isn't a drug, or somewhere else. Unfortunately for us, um, what happened was medical cannabis come along, and it's, oh, the Ministry of Health loved it. This is a drug. Um, so, and it's got hundreds of millions of dollars and everyone's going to be skipping down the street singing, yee-haw, um, we're all going to be millionaires. And the amount of people I've had come up my drive and tell me that they're going to become multimillionaires. One guy tried to tell me he was going to make $8 million a month out of medical cannabis. 
And I said to him, you know, there's just a number. Where are you getting these numbers from? Um, you know, who is your market? This got, you know, this $800 million has got to come from somewhere. Then they put the medical cannabis legislation in place. Now, Rodney, this is my truth. I don't know whether it's the truth, but my belief is that Tilray in Canada, most 85% of their product goes to the recreational market. They are the biggest medical cannabis producers in the world, and 85% of their stuff goes to the legal recreational market. Um, and I think that's what all these companies in New Zealand were rubbing their hands together. We've got a referendum. Um, we're going to kill it on the recreational market. Um, I can't... And just to be clear, just to be clear, uh, Mac, um, by the way, you on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to Donald McIntosh, Mac as we call him, or Mad Mac as his friends call him, and we're talking the hemp industry, and the hemp industry, nothing to do with the drug. That's a hard thing to get your head around because it's got all these other uses, like plants do, and it was a plant that was used for centuries um, for everything from fibre to, to health products to, to food. And, yes, uh, you can have a cultivar that will give you the drug and you can harvest the drug, but that's not what we're talking about here. At the same time, just so I've got this clear, Mac, you were getting the hemp industry up and running, nothing to do with the drug. Parallel to that well, is coming along this, oh, we can harvest cannabis and you can smoke it legally or eat it legally and get high and we'll run this industry. And I imagine this is where the wires got crossed. Absolutely spot on, Rodney. I like the way that I don't have to explain much to you of, of how we wound up in such a pickle. Uh, we were there well over 10 years before then. If you ever go to court, it's first in, first served to judges, and it, we haven't had the money or the resources to go to court, but I'm picking that uh, over time we may well have to if I'm unable to use this election year. And when I say I, it's the royal I, it's yes. the hemp industry. I don't kid myself that. So that they concept. had the referendum. The referendum failed, yes. surprising everyone. And the political interest in hemp fell away. Yes, and, and that's epitomised by MPI giving money from the Food and Fibre Fund and not pocket change, millions to a medical cannabis company, and that money should have gone to ensuring that real farmers were growing a real... If there's so much money in medical cannabis, why do you need government money? Mm. You know, you're all saying that, that there's squillions of dollars in it. So... They came up with, uh, and I can remember the chair uh, uh, of the interagency working group saying to me, because I presented to Cannabis and Health in 2001, and this was on the basis of my first wife died of uh, cancer, and uh, she was on morphine, and uh, um, uh, she wanted off it, and the nurse said, if your family can get some cannabis for you, and they did. 
and I said, you don't need to, to legalise it for medical cannabis to, to uh, be legal. You uh, simply have to put the, the legal structure around it so that it can be prescribed for people. Anyway, they didn't do that. We got Sativex at that time and that was all. Um, and then Philip Bunkle, for whatever reason, got chucked out of Parliament. But then medical cannabis came along, and the reality is this. There's, there is a market for the high THC stuff, the stuff that makes you laugh at movies that aren't funny and raid the fridge and that sort of thing, the stuff that gets you high. But the vast majority of the market is in CBD, which has no psychoactive properties whatsoever. Mm. CBC, CBN, terpenes, flavonoids, all of them have a positive effect um, on your life. Uh, some people say to me, well, cannabis is cannabis is cannabis. Well, no, a car is not a car is not a car. You know, mm. what sort of car is it? Is it a Suzuki Swift? Is it a, an American grunt machine like a, um, oh, um, Mustang or something like that? Uh, is it a ute? All sorts of things. Um, they're not the same. And it's bothered me because uh, people won't like me saying this, but I think the industrial hemp is, I think you're quite right. I think it has been used for justification for recreational, whereas mm. they should forward their own argument. Don't mm. drag industrial hemp down uh, with this. Stand alone on your factual data and leave hemp alone. Now, the reason I say there is no real um, medical cannabis industry is they rely on those CBs. What's high in them? Not recreational, industrial hemp. And why have they put things in place to try and control the whole of industrial hemp? It's because they want everything. They want the roots. They want um, the leaf and they want the seed heads. We want to turn them into foodstuffs, high-protein um, foodstuffs, good for your health, all that sort of thing, uh, no possibility of getting stoned on it. So why don't we just get on it? And it's interesting, in the European Union, they've just made hemp tea legal um, without a prescription. Here, we're still dithering around. They haven't gone far enough. But that's the nature of politics, isn't it? Uh, so what we've got here is a situation where not only is the Ministry of Health uh, disabling the industry, but because they want to own the industry, the Medical Cannabis Council is strangling it as well. What's wrong with your normal business practice of just coming along to us and saying, we want to buy some of what you produce and here's what we'll pay for it. And they won't pay much because they never do for, with commodity prices. Um, and if you want to turn that into a medicine, away you go. But leave us out of it. We're not wanting it to be a medicine. And I the use this. That, that the hemp industry in New Zealand is, just so I'm clear, and correct me if I get this wrong, the hemp industry in New Zealand is being regulated and controlled as if it were medical cannabis. Yes. And what you're saying is this is we we're, we're food and fiber. 
Yes. We, 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 that would be like, oh, I don't know, taking strawberries and saying because there's some little thing that you can use in a strawberry to make a medicine out of, you come under MedSafe and you're, 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 you're regulated as medical. And a guy that's trying to grow strawberries for the market on a Sunday is suddenly being treated like he's um, producing a drug. Yes, uh, uh, that's absolutely right. Look, the small amounts of GBH in wines, um, Rodney, those, the Ministry of Health are saying one molecule of THC and industrial hemp makes it illicit. Well, then why doesn't one molecule of GHB, which is a daybreak drug, yes. um, and wine, why doesn't that make wine illegal? No, it doesn't. And this is why I say the, this... There seems to be a madness associated with the word cannabis because our reality doesn't seem to kick in. It's a bit like we were talking about earlier with the COVID. Um, it seems that people will believe what they want to believe and what yes. suits their particular approach. Well, I would have, until a week ago, used hemp and cannabis interchangeably, and and that's my mistake. And it's just where you land. And, of course, we never look into things. We sort of give a cursory glance uh, of the headline. And then if a government was thinking of legislating hemp, I'd be thinking, oh, God, and we're going to have stone kids at school. Not yes. understanding the fundamental point that there's this plant that has a multitude of uses has had a multitude of uses forever and got declared unlawful the entire plant yes. because of a particular product that can be produced from that. And in actual fact, the plant that you grow for hemp and food doesn't even produce that product. Uh, that's, you're exactly right. My, uh, my first cultivar, Aotearoa 1, it normally comes back with a THC test of 0.056 of a percent. Wow. That is so minute um, that, you know, we're going to be breathing in worse stuff in the air that we breathe in cities, all that sort of thing. Well, you, I'm wouldn't not get saying, high, you wouldn't get high if you ate a hay shed full of it. Not a possibility. You, now, you would die of overeating before yes. you got any effect. Now, what you're a man of uh, vision, uh, you are a man of science, and you're an action man, and I'm interested, what is your vision of what the hemp industry could be in New Zealand? My vision is, uh, I heard you talking to Richard Barge the other day that you'd read the five-minute guide, which we co-wrote, and... Um, uh, I also heard uh, you suggest to him that we should change the name, and believe you me, we have thought about that. Yes. Um, but I don't think it will make – my vision is that it, it's rightful place in New Zealand. I don't know what it is, will be worth, but I know it will be significantly more than it is now because of the multiplicity of end users, because forest research made it into disposable cups edible takeaway food containers, credit cards, blah, blah, blah. 
they did all of that. That's only the beginning of Kiwi innovation. I've always had this saying, Rodney, you don't know what's under a rock till you turn it over. And we, a thousand good ideas die every day because people get treated like halfwits. And some of them probably are. I mean, every half-witted, there's probably a thousand half-witted ideas for one that's actually going to go the distance. Yeah, but you let a thousand daffodils bloom, right? Exactly. And I think we're inhibiting the natural ability of Kiwis to actually get on and do things um, and actually create wonderful things. What will they be? I don't know. It would be nice in a hundred years' time if someone said, oh, there was a guy way back, uh, what was his name? Mad Mac, he created this cultivar. And now we um, have got a field out there that is producing, and by the way, that's his grandson or daughter or whoever over there. Um, not for, like I've said this before to Rodney, if it was anything else, I'd be Sir Mac Mac, Sir Mad Mac yes. Yes. <laughs> because it's cannabis. <laughs> Not that I specifically want it, but there's a lot of people that get these titles that have been paid all their lives, and there's a lot of other people doing a lot of work around that could benefit New Zealand. So what do I want to see or what I what my vision? My vision is that it takes its rightful place, that these ridiculous impediments are taken out of the way. It gets standalone legislation, outside motor, outside MOH. It's got nothing to do with you. We don't run, if we want to make medicines, we'll make an application to you. And we'll and by the way, the difference between the licenses, five I heard Richard tell you five hundred and eleven for a hemp license, twenty-three thousand for a medical cannabis license. Right. So no wonder they want to make heaps of money out of it. But so and far nobody is Rodney. Of course you have seen a parallel with the power industry. Yes. Which was almost nothing to this significant industry. We can reflect on things like you and I, when we were growing up, there was a thing called Chinese gooseberries. Yes. And it was a nothing business, right? Yes. And now look at kiwi fruit. Yep. I mean, it's extraordinary. And your point is you have this amazing plant that historically has had a wide range of uses going back centuries that was cut off by legislation in the 30s following the scare about uh, marijuana. Yep. And none of us are advocating marijuana smoking. What we're saying is the plant, and this plant has far more uses than a Chinese gooseberry vine, right? Yes, very definitely. Because it's got uh, food, fiber, medicine. That's what New Zealand farmers need. Do we yes. really need to be planting a billion pine trees when we can sequester CO2 with this thing? And it yeah. does it in four months? Yeah. And you make a beautiful coat out of it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, the, the whole thing is I don't know where it will go. But what I do know is that Kiwis are really good at doing this if you give them free reign. You've yes. got to let them go. And at the moment, they're being caged up 
and not capable of expressing their abilities. And as I say, I have no idea what some of the things, I've had ideas and made things over the, the years and that sort of thing, but I'm sure we can do a lot better. Um, like hempcrete is a significantly better product all round it would seem, provided the R&D is put into making that uh, an acceptable building product to mainstream Kiwis. It's, they don't even think about it. Yep, that's what I'm going to use. It breathes, it's blah, 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 it's great for my, uh, uh, for my new house, so I'm going to use it in there. Medium density fiberboard, same thing. Um, but we have to take the first step, and we'll never take it until politicians are actually able to understand what's trying to go on here. I know that what the attitude you described, I know that's the attitude that they've still got. It's not yes. until you get close to people. I had to get close to Colin Moyle's PA in the power industry, and I got close to a few um, Annette King's PA and Philida Bungle's PA. And we all know the Sergeant Majors, um, you know, are pivotal to yes. armies running smoothly and that sort of thing. And if you can get on board with those sort of people, then eventually the politicians might start to understand. But at the moment, we're a long way from that, Rodney, and that's quite sad for me. Um, put aside the fact that I could claim that I've wasted 30 years of my life, which I haven't, but you want it to get there. And one of the things I asked Damien O'Connor at the first hemp summer, can you get us out of motor and out from the Misuse of Drugs Act? Yes, but it's complicated. Damien, that means you don't want to do it. Absolutely. That's what complicated means. And, and, and I've known him since 1996. I met him at a hemp meeting in Motuaka in 1996. I actually thought that when he became the minister, he would be helpful. And for a start, he said he would be. He said he would sort um, out uh, the Ministry of Health. Six months later, when I asked him why he was doing it, he called me a whiner. Well, well yeah, I asked you why you hadn't done what you said you would do, uh, Minister, but uh, um, not wanting to load all the blame on one person because it's a cultural blame. It's um, our societies uh, to blame, and, and partly it's the name to blame. It would be really good if we could call, um, I don't know, we could call him califragilistic. Or, um, or marigold. Yes, marigolds. Uh, it's a, a, it's been a wonderful morning with you, Mac. And I hope you'll come on the show again, because I don't think we've scratched the surface of your life. But more particularly, we're only scratching the surface of hemp and its uses and scratching the surface of the madness of the way it's caught in this legislative deadlock and a huge potential for New Zealand. But I do want to thank you for sharing your life with us. Um, people can find that video. They probably, what would they have to Google to find that video of you? 
It's easy enough to find. Just type in Mad Mac and the Flat Ugly Snail. It comes up. That's this right. is another interesting thing, you know, Rodney. Yeah. Um, I was famous in China and the US because of that video. The only no. place I don't appear to be famous is <laughs> Well, the video is great, right? So you Google, Google, I'll put a link to it uh, on the on the webpage for Reality Check Radio to uh, Mad Mac and the flat, what is it? Flat Ugly, ugly Snow, which is power, Flat Ugly Snow. It's a fantastic video. Thank you for sharing uh, with us. Um, Donald McIntosh, Mad Mac, uh, what a life, what a story. Um, he makes the rest of us look timid and boring. And there he is at 74, full of vim and vigor and full of laughs. And that's why Mad Mac is going to win because he can laugh and he can enjoy things. And God, the dear old souls that are holding him back and holding New Zealand back and holding the industry back, they wouldn't have a laugh in them. They wouldn't, they, I can't imagine, they suck the joy out of the room. Uh, send us, you're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Send us an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Send us a text at 2057. Uh, what a great story. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio. 